This is Blackstone Joe, and you're listening to Slick Talk. If I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. Today is January 16th, 2023. I had to say it a bit slowly because otherwise I was just going to automatically say 2022. We haven't made it far enough into the new year for me to completely kick that out of my mental space. I guess it's kind of like when you're preparing a piece of meat and you put the seasoning or the marinade, you don't immediately expect the flavor to stick. You have to give us some time. Give me some time, your host, as this new number, this 2023, begins to take hold. But enough about me and my attention span. Here's a story from the stone. A customer called, and at the moment I was writing a report, maybe an email, and they had a question about coolant testing. Now, for those that don't know, we do test coolant as well as gasoline, diesel fuel. We go far beyond simply the engine oil. So if you have any questions about testing besides oil, feel free to ask. This customer's question related to coolant specifically. And they were wondering if we could test, you know, one component um, singularly, you know, not do our full round of testing. And this comes up every now and again with engine oil too. People will ask, hey, can I just get the spectral exam so I can look at metals and you know, look for signs of coolant or excess dirt? For whatever reason, maybe it simply boils down to cost. People will occasionally ask if they can just do one particular test. And that's okay. Usually we can make accommodations. And in this case, with coolant, they are wondering if we could check just the pH level. And first off, a pH level, it's relevant to coolant because that lets you know how acidic or basic the coolant is. You don't want it to be overly acidic, so we do include a pH test as part of our coolant testing. So far, pretty normal, right? Nothing terribly remarkable here, common question, and also, you know, a bit of information, an FYI for you if you didn't know we test coolant. But here was the part that stuck and the aspect that I found particularly entertaining, I think some of you will too. By the end of the phone call, the interested party noted that they thought this coolant was probably going to be acidic because they had already put a couple of drops of the coolant on their tongue and tasted it. Therefore, it probably was acidic per their taste buds. I've been in the oil game for a long time and Even for the love of the game, I don't think I could do the taste test for coolant or oil. If some of you do, more power to you. I just don't know if uh, A, I can be trusted, and B, if I trust whatever is in that sample bottle. Uh, Most of you do a great job of sending us things that uh, are suitable for testing. But there has been the occasional out-of-left-field sample that I don't think I want anywhere near uh, my buds or any other part of my body. Uh, that's that's just me. Your host is, is being honest with you on this one. Uh, but the customer noted that they had performed that test and, you know, they and I get it. Like, it, it's an old school uh, way of thinking. 
Um, I think we can go beyond uh, the taste test. And, and this customer did too, which is why they're going to send us in the coolant sample. We're going to check the pH level, let them know if it's overly acidic or not. But of course, one recommendation I made to this customer and that I would make to all of you is to proceed with the full gamut of testing. And it's not because I am out here trying to secure all of your money. It's because I would hate to tell someone that their coolant is not overly acidic, but then have them miss out on other results that are crucial. Things like a test for hydrocarbons, or if you don't know the freeze point, the, the concentration of water to glycol, that could also be problematic. So I would suggest the full gamut of testing. It all builds into our serviceability recommendation, but if you are in a pinch, or if you have a situation where you don't have enough oil, say, for a spectral exam of flashpoint, solubles, viscosity, etc., then we can break it down into singular tests if you need to. Now, a couple of house cleaning matters. Uh, first up, I have a reminder to call into our voicemail if you have any questions for an upcoming episode, topic ideas, anything you would like me to cover on this show. Don't hesitate to call our voicemail at 614-407-6169. On our previous episode, episode 81, I did mention that you are welcome to guess the three samples we have in our intro. These are three distinct samples, not referring to the instrumental itself, but the audio clips. Those are from three distinct sources. Um, I'll give you a clue to the first one. A movie about oil. I'm going to keep it vague because I tend to think that at least some of you out there listening to this show, a show about oil, uh, might have seen a certain movie um, released uh, about 2007, 2008, and uh, that's as far as I'm going to go. But it's one of my favorite movies, hence the reason I wanted to include a clip from it in our intro. It was just too perfect not to do. So call our voicemail. Again, that number is 614-407-6169. And by calling that number, we can feature you, your topic, uh, whatever question you have in an upcoming episode. We love having A, feedback, but B, uh, input from you, the listener, about what you would like to hear on our show. Now for a catch pan segment. A customer sent an email my way recently, and I think their question would apply to many of you, especially if you're new to oil analysis and you're wondering about how to do it right. A customer mentioned that they want to know how we can compare a cold sample versus a hot sample. Basically, what are we going to look for? What are the differences also that they need to be aware of? Why do we differentiate a hot sample from a cold sample? They were wondering if it makes a difference. You know, do modern oils keep contaminants suspended regardless of temperature? If you are sampling something that is not from an engine, a gasoline diesel engine, or a piston aircraft, etc., you don't need to worry about sampling warm. So if it's a gearbox, transmission, so on and so forth, don't worry about sampling warm because Metals are going to be the same regardless of the temperature, and the oil is going to hold those metals in a nice even suspension, so you don't need to worry about warming it up before you take the sample. However, if it is engine oil, then you want to take that sample warm, or at least warm the engine up, then shut it down until it's cool enough, you don't burn yourself. Some of you don't mind, I get it. 
I have what I call chef hands because I have burnt my hands on so many cast irons, pots, pans, etc. that I'm used to it. And I know some of you are too when it comes to working in the garage. So the main thing you want to keep in mind is if it's engine oil, a cold sample or one that is taken after just briefly starting the engine, that can coincide with fuel dilution. Totally fine to let the engine cool down till it is not going to burn you when you take the sample, but don't start it up, then shut it off, and then take the sample if you can avoid it, of course. You know, a lot of time people drop their cars off at a dealer and they don't know if they had to move the car onto ramps, so on and so forth. It's okay um, if this does happen. The reason we advise against sampling cold or right after you start the engine is because of fuel dilution. The engine hasn't had time to burn off the fuel needed for startup, and it can spoil a otherwise clean report. Um, occasionally, there might also be high levels. Um, we just want to get you as clean a report as possible. Again, we're not going to uh, flip our lid about a amount of fuel that we know is typical for a sample that it was not fully warm. Um, we know what the amount typically is and we'll mention it. I would just hate to spoil an otherwise clean set of results solely because there wasn't knowledge that fuel can show up um, if the oil is not warmed up prior to the sample being taken. Not a deal breaker. Again, we can still analyze the oil we can still tell you what's going on with wear metals and look for other contaminants. To give yourself a report that is hopefully one with no measurable fuel, just advise warming the engine up and also doing so not just by idling, uh, going out on the highway, going out for you know, 15, 20 minute drive, then shutting the engine off, then proceeding with your sample. That way you can hopefully cut fuel out of the picture and as well, you can remove the ambiguity that comes with that fuel from startup. If you are in the process of hunting down a problem, you know, with an injector, fuel pump, so on and so forth, and you want to only know what fuel could be there due to a problem, eliminating that fuel that can show up right after starting the engine can give you some clarity. Now we're on to the meat of the episode. Uh, so today's main event is focused on diesel engines and flux compound. If you don't know already, flux is a paste that engine manufacturers use to connect solder to wires. It has aluminum and potassium in it. When these connections start to fail, we'll see those elements increase, land at high levels, and that can be a precursor to a full-blown antifreeze problem. Now, early on in engine's life, usually this is for diesel engines, Rarely, gasoline engines, sometimes the turbocharged engines, will see what looks to be flux, but this is primarily for diesel engine owners. Early on in a diesel's life, it's normal to find that high aluminum, high potassium from flux. But as with metals that can also be high early on, you want to see improvement in these elements. So let's first look at this in the context of young engines. When these elements do show up, they're often going to be high, compared to our averages. We also understand that potassium is not an element that you really want to compare to averages. Mainly, you're comparing the aluminum level to averages. Potassium, there's a level that 
generally speaks to contamination regardless of how that compares to averages. While I'm on the topic, additive elements such as calcium, zinc, phosphorus, magnesium, boron, we don't compare those to averages either, at least in terms of viewing them in a good or bad light. Um, we understand that customers don't all run the same brand or blend, and we base our averages on the engine type. So if you have more calcium, more phosphorus than average, that's okay. That relates to what you're running and having more of a particular additive, let's say, molybdenum, boron, again, calcium, phosphorus, zinc. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Potassium, on the other hand, is going to be either flux or coolant, usually, unless you have an additive like RevX or Arch Oil. So what we want to do in a young engine is see these elements that initially start off high, the wear metals in a diesel, potassium, and we want to see a trend of progress. If we do not see that progress, if we see potassium steadily increasing or spiking, then that is indicative of an antifreeze problem. So we know that this flux is going to show up in a younger engine. That's fine. Look for those decreases that indicate flux as well as decreased metals from wear-in. Finally, decreased silicon from sealer. Look for that improvement across the board. And then you can feel good about that flux washing out and those elements simply being flux and not from a more sinister source, usually coolant. Now, if it's not a new engine, you can still see flux not due to a problem, but due to recent work. Such as this particular instance, I was looking at a sample from a Duramax engine, and we saw some interesting changes. Potassium and aluminum both climbed, and there was no mention of recent work on the slip, but I had my suspicions that it was probably flux. The reason being, the surrounding elements didn't speak to a problem. I'm thinking about sodium first. If you've been around this program for a while, that is another marker for coolant that you should probably know pretty well by this point. And... Sodium was marginal. Potassium had gone up quite a bit, though, and we had more aluminum. But the thing is, is this engine in particular had no other metal testing high. We didn't have increases in iron or lead or copper, chrome for that matter. Everything else looked peachy. So I had my suspicions that flux was still a likely source for the increases. But due to the information we had on hand, we had to at least acknowledge the possibility of these elements showing poor wear and coolant respectively. And while I'm on this topic, just a brief tangent once more, these will happen. If there are any recent repairs or other engine work to consider, please do note it on the slip. I find sometimes customers do like to test the analyst a little bit just to see if there's anything that we might miss. We won't necessarily miss what else you might have done, but focus on or guess just based on limited info. So I would just encourage you, if you do have any recent work or modifications, include that info and will include whether it is a likely explanation for a shift in any particular element. But back to this Duramax, the increases in aluminum and potassium are what caught our attention. And we noted that it could be poor wear and coolant, or it could be flux if they had made any recent repairs. Turns out they had. This particular instance involved a radiator replacement. So here's a situation where it could be flux, could be coolant, due to the fact that had the previous radiator failed, I'm not sure based on the limited info I had, if the previous radiator had 
failed, then there might be some residual potassium from coolant. We also might just be looking at flux period. But here's the thing. With the benefit of testing, you can know that all is well with the new radiator, that nothing went awry with the installation by tracking the progress that you should see from that flux washing out. Or if there's any residual coolant, the oil will tell you if contamination is a lingering and ongoing problem, hopefully not a worsening problem. And by using the analysis after repairs and then a sample that is removed from that work, the oil change after, you can see how that progress is taking shape. And on the other hand, if it's not taking shape, you can get a heads up on that contamination before hopefully it has caused engine wear to worsen or have an impact on the oil's physical properties. So if you don't have a new engine and you don't have an engine that's been worked on recently, but you have an oil analysis file that's been established where you've been able to monitor trends, that's when you can tell that flux is not a likely explanation for aluminum and potassium being high. That's the benefit of starting an oil analysis file early on, monitoring trends, and then you can see if you have a problem such as a failing EGR cooler, you can see those increases that had they been in a wear-in sample or right after repairs, then you might be able to assign flux, but you know that there's been no repairs. You know that it's been several oil changes since wear-in. And then you see in testing increases in aluminum and potassium. Right there is a giveaway that there is very likely a problem that you need addressed. Problem with an EGR cooler can be common for some diesel engines, and the result is increases in aluminum and potassium. Usually, coolant shows up as potassium and sodium, but not always. So we can tell if you've built up that trend, and we know that you don't have any recent repairs to factor in, that those increases are in fact pointing to a problem. Maybe it's with the EGR cooler, depending on the maker model you have. We keep track of recalls of known problems that have been passed along to us, either by customers, manufacturers, so on and so forth. So if you have an engine where you're suspicious of a problem, either due to being made aware of it from a recall or your dealer, so on and so forth, and you're wondering if we are seeing evidence of it, just mention that on your oil information slip that, hey, I'm suspicious of a failing EGR cooler due to the make model. Let me know if you're seeing signs of it on your end and we'll go right to the spectral results and we can determine whether or not we're seeing signs of that problem. So to wrap up, flux is common to see in diesel engines early on after the wear-in period. We can also see it if you've made any recent repairs. If you've replaced a radiator, had anything done to the emission system, we can see those increases in aluminum and potassium. But no repairs and an engine that is removed from wear-in, you shouldn't be seeing increases in aluminum and potassium. If you are, it's probably not flux. You're probably dealing with coolant. We'll call out the signs of coolant in our testing. And on your end, you can watch for things like coolant loss to avoid an overheat. And then if it's an engine where we have a known issue that is particular to that maker model, you can then proceed with that information to your dealer or mechanic, whoever can help you out with repairs. And of course, using oil analysis all along the way to see is the engine wearing poorly as a result? Is the oil not holding up? So on and so forth. You can start to build the 
ideal oil change interval while you're managing these issues. Again, it's okay to see flux early on. It's okay to see it after repairs, but we'll let you know whether or not that appears to be harmless flux or something much more sinister. That wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening through episode 82. We'll be back soon with episode 83. In the meantime, don't hesitate to hit up our voicemail if you have any questions or topic ideas for the show. You can also reach out to our Instagram, Facebook pages. You know the channels. This is Blackstone Joe signing off. <laughs>